This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, thank you for joining the program today. It's good to have you with us. We're looking at the Buddhist text entitled The Eight Verses of Mind Training by the Tibetan master Langri Tampa and have gone through the first five verses. Now last week we went through through verse five and this week we're going to continue with the next verse which reads, When somebody whom I have benefited and in whom I have great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. But before we consider that, Let's set our motivation as usual. Thinking, through this program, may I become enlightened for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Let's go now to that great Shakespearean tragedy of betrayal and retribution from which this speech comes. The raven himself is horse that croaks the fateful entrance of Duncan under my battlements. Come, you spirits, that tend on mortal thoughts. Unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood. Stop up the access and passage to remorse that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my foul purpose nor keep peace between the effect and it. Come to my women's breasts and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Come, thick night, and pour thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark, to cry, Hold, hold! Do you recognize the fateful prayer of Lady Macbeth as the old King Duncan comes to stay the night in Macbeth's castle after the play's opening battle? Not only is she shoring up her determination to betray her duty and hospitality and kill the king, but she also invites the madness that such a deed will lead to. Karmic cause and almost instant effect. Of course, Duncan, killed in his bed, can have no recourse to the betrayal by his favourite general, nor for that matter can Banquo, once he's murdered by his close friend Macbeth. But how would you react to betrayal, by someone more close to you than just about anyone else. Normally, we would consider a dear one who badly betrays us as a despised enemy, wouldn't we? But here, Langri Tampa tacks in the opposite direction. He advises treating such a person as our greatest teacher. Why? And how can we possibly do that? In her commentary to the eight verses, Sangi Kadro says we should first look carefully at the love we had for our betrayer. Was our love pure and unconditional, asking nothing in return, she asks? Or was it conditional, tied up with expectations? 
Most of the time, we place expectations on our friends and loved ones. In exchange for the love, friendship, care and help that we give them, we expect them to be nice to us, to do what we want them to do, and not to do what we would not want them to do. In this way, our relationships are somewhat like business contracts, with a whole set of unwritten rules. I will do this for you, provided you do that for me. I'll be nice to you as long as you're nice to me. I will help you as long as you do what I want. This kind of love is called conditional love, love with strings attached. It's not real love. Real love is unconditional. It is a sincere, heartfelt caring about the other person with respect and acceptance of them just as they are, without demanding or expecting anything in return. It is dangerous to have expectations of other people because they do not always live up to our expectations. They do not always act the way we want them to. In some cases, this may be deliberate. They may truly intend to hurt us. But in most cases, they are simply being themselves, doing what they want to do. If this happens to go against what we want them to do, then we feel hurt, disappointed and even angry. She goes on to say that the real problem then is not what the other person did or didn't do, but our expectations. We have to examine those expectations and see how realistic they are. What exactly were my expectations? Was I being realistic and fair? Or was I expecting too much? Would it be right for me to stop caring about this person simply because he didn't live up to my expectations? This brings us to the reason why this person is such a valuable teacher, she says. He has given us the opportunity to recognize the limits of our love. We discover that our love was not free from conditions and was not strong enough to withstand hurt and betrayal. We may then decide that we need to work harder at developing pure, unconditional love. Therefore, if we find ourselves in the kind of situation described here where we've been hurt by someone we trusted and our mind is filled with painful, disturbing thoughts and emotions, it is useful to regard the situation as a valuable lesson and to regard the harm giver as a teacher. He has given us the opportunity to understand ourselves better, to see our limitations and to become aware of the areas we need to work on to perfect our love. In fact, that person is a supreme teacher because it is only through facing difficulties such as this that we can develop real love, compassion and wisdom and progress along the spiritual path. She goes on, Difficult situations also give us an opportunity to learn about and work on developing our patience. Patience is a valuable asset because it enables us to remain peaceful and joyful no matter what happens. We all have a certain amount of patience, but it is limited, and when someone pushes us beyond our limits, we become angry. So we need to keep extending the boundaries of our patience, and a person who harms and upsets us provides us with the perfect opportunity to do this. Difficult situations are a valuable test. If we never go through this kind of test, we can fool ourselves into thinking, oh, I'm a very patient person, nothing can disturb me. But such thinking hinders our spiritual growth. Getting angry makes us realize we're not as patient as we like to think. Then we can humbly say to ourselves, now I can see that I still have a lot of anger and I need to work more on developing patience. His Holiness the Dalai Lama agrees 
In his commentary, he says, Usually we expect people whom we have helped a great deal to be very grateful, and if they react to us with ingratitude, we are likely to get angry. In such situations, we should not get upset, but practice patience instead. Moreover, we should see such people as teachers testing our patients and therefore treat them with respect. This verse contains all the Bodhicharya Vatara teachings on patience. Uh, Bodhicharya Vatara is the Sanskrit for what we in English know as Shantideva's The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And His Holiness continues, So that is why a person who hurts and betrays us is like a teacher. He or teaches us that we still have a long way to go in order to perfect our love and patience and also gives us the opportunity to put both of these qualities into practice and also gives us the opportunity to put both of these qualities into practice. A few simple words, but a world of difficulty. How do we do that? How do we practice patience in the face of such pain, anger and resentment? In the online magazine Lion's Roar, Pema Children wrote an extraordinary article entitled The Answer to Anger and Aggression is Patience, and that goes some way to showing us how to do it. She writes... The Buddhist teachings tell us that patience is the antidote to anger and aggression. When we feel aggression in its many forms, resentment, bitterness, being very critical, complaining and so forth, we can apply the different practices we've been given and all the good advice we've heard and given to other people. But those often don't seem to help us. That's why this teaching about patience caught my interest a few years ago because it's so hard to know what to do when one feels anger and aggression. I thought, if patience is the antidote to aggression, maybe I'll just try that. In the process, I learned a lot about what patience is and about what it isn't. I'd like to share with you what I've learned to encourage you to find out for yourself how patience works with aggression. To begin with, I learned about patience and the cessation of suffering. It says that patience is a way to de-escalate aggression. I'm thinking here of aggression as synonymous with pain. When we're feeling aggressive, and in some sense this would apply to any strong feeling, there's an enormous pregnant quality that pulls us in the direction of wanting to get some resolution. It hurts so much to feel the aggression that we want it to be resolved. So what do we usually do? We do exactly what is going to escalate the aggression and the suffering. We strike out. We hit back. Something hurts our feelings and initially there is some softness there. If you're fast, you can catch it. But usually you don't even realize there is any softness. You find yourself in the middle of a hot, noisy, pulsating, want-to-just-get-even-with-someone state of mind. It has a very hard quality to it with your words or your actions, in order to escape the pain of aggression, you create more aggression and pain. At that point, patience means getting smart. You stop and wait. You also have to shut up, because if you say anything, it's going to come out aggressive, even if you say, I love you. She then writes about being furious with a colleague and calling him on the phone. She tried meditating and doing all sorts of practices, but nothing helped. So she thought she would try talking to him. But as soon as she greeted him, he knew he was in trouble. 
I thought I would very sweetly cover over what I was really feeling and say something pleasant about all the bad things he'd done, whatever they were, she writes. But just by the tone of my greeting to him, he knew. That's what it's like with aggression. You can't speak because everyone will feel the vibes. No matter what is coming out of your mouth, it's like you're sitting on top of a keg of dynamite and it's vibrating. Patience has a lot to do with getting smart at that point and just waiting, not speaking or doing anything. On the other hand, it also means being completely and totally honest with yourself about the fact that you're furious. You're not suppressing anything. Patience has nothing to do with suppression. In fact, it has everything to do with a gentle, honest relationship with yourself. If you wait and you don't feed your discursive thought, you can be honest about the fact that you're angry. But at the same time, you can continue to let go of the internal dialogue. In that dialogue, you're blaming and criticizing and then probably feeling guilty and beating yourself up for doing that. It's torturous because you feel bad about being so angry at the same time that you really are extremely angry and you can't drop it. It's painful to experience such awful confusion. Still, you just wait and remain patient with your confusion and the pain that comes with it. Patience has a quality of enormous honesty in it, but it also has a quality of not escalating things, allowing a lot of space for the other person to speak, for the other person to express themselves, while you don't react, even though inside you are reacting. You let the words go and just be there. This suggests the fearlessness that goes with patience. If you practice the kind of patience that leads to the de-escalation of aggression and the cessation of suffering, you will be cultivating enormous courage. You will really get to know anger and how it breeds violent words and actions. You will see the whole thing without acting it out. When you practice patience, you're not repressing anger, you're just sitting there with it, going cold turkey with the aggression. As a result, you really get to know the energy of anger and you also get to know where it leads, even without going there. You've expressed your anger so many times, you know where it will lead. The desire to say something mean, to gossip or slander or to complain, to just somehow get rid of that aggression is like a tidal wave. But you realize that such actions don't get rid of the aggression, they're escalated. So instead, you're patient, patient with yourself. Developing patience and fearlessness means learning to sit still with the edginess of the energy. It's like sitting on a wild horse or on a wild tiger that could eat you up. There's a limerick to that effect. There was a young lady of Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They came back from the ride with the lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. Sitting with your discomfort feels like riding on that tiger because it's so frightening. When we examine this process, we learn something very interesting. There is no resolution. The resolution that human beings seek comes from a tremendous misunderstanding. We think we can resolve everything. When we human beings feel powerful energy, we tend to be extremely uncomfortable until things are resolved in some kind of secure and comforting way, either on the side of yes or on the side of no, or the side of right or the side of wrong, or the side of anything at all that we can hold on to. 
But the practice we're doing gives us nothing to hold on to. Actually, the teachings themselves give us nothing to hold on to. In working with patience and fearlessness, we learn to be patient with the fact that we are human beings, that everyone who is born and dies from the beginning of time until the end of time is naturally going to want some kind of resolution to this edgy, moody energy. And there isn't any. The only resolution is temporary and just causes more suffering. We discover that as a matter of fact, joy and happiness, peace, harmony and being at home with yourself and your world come from sitting still with the moodiness of the energy until it rises, dwells and passes away. The energy never resolves itself into something solid. So all the while we stay in the middle of the energy. The path of touching in on the inherent softness of the genuine heart is to sit still and be patient with that kind of energy. We don't have to criticize ourselves when we fail, even for a moment, because we're just completely typical human beings. The only thing that's unique about us is that we're brave enough to go into these things more deeply and explore beneath our surface reaction of trying to get solid ground under our feet. Patience is an enormously wonderful and supportive and even magical practice. It's a way of completely changing the fundamental human habit of trying to resolve things by going either to the right or to the left, calling things right or calling things wrong. It's the way to develop courage, the way to find out what life is really about. Patience is also not ignoring. In fact, patience and curiosity go together. You wonder, who am I? Who am I at the level of my neurotic patterns? Who am I at the level beyond birth and death? If you wish to look into the nature of your own being, you need to be inquisitive. The path is a journey of investigation, beginning to look more deeply at what's going on. The teachings give us a lot of suggestions about what we can look for, and the practices give us a lot of suggestions on how to look. Patience is one extremely helpful suggestion. Aggression, on the other hand, prevents us from looking. It puts a tight lid on our curiosity. Aggression is an energy that is determined to resolve the situation into a hard, solid, fixed pattern which somebody wins and somebody loses. When you begin to investigate, you notice, for one thing, that whenever there is pain of any kind, the pain of aggression, grieving, loss, irritation, resentment, jealousy, indigestion, physical pain, if you really look into that, you can find out for yourself that behind the pain there is always something we're attached to. There's always something we're holding on to. I say that with such confidence, but you have to find out for yourself whether this is really true. You can read about it. The first thing the Buddha ever taught was the truth that suffering comes from attachment. And that's in the books. But when you discover it yourself, it goes a little deeper right away. As soon as you discover that behind your pain is something you're holding on to, you're at a place that you will frequently experience on the spiritual path. After a while, it seems like almost every moment of your life you're there, at a point where you realize you actually have a choice. You have a choice whether to open or to close, whether to hold on or let go, whether to harden or soften. That choice is presented to you again and again and again. For instance, you're feeling pain. You look deeply into it 
and you notice that there's something very hard you're holding on to. And then you have a choice. You can let go of it, which basically means you connect with the softness behind all that hardness. Perhaps one of us has made the discovery that behind all the hardness of resistance, stress, aggression and jealousy, there is enormous softness that we're trying to cover over. Aggression usually begins when someone hurts our feelings. The very first response is very soft, but before we even notice what we're doing, we harden. So we can either let go and connect with that softness, or we can continue to hold on, which means that the suffering will continue. It requires enormous patience, even to be curious enough to look, to investigate. And then, when you realize you have a choice, and that there's actually something there that you're attached to, it requires great patience to keep going into it. Because you want to go into denial, to shut down. You're going to say to yourself, I don't want to see this. You'll be afraid, because even if you're starting to get close to it, the thought of letting go is usually very frightening. You may feel that you're going to die or that something is going to die, and you'll be right. If you let go, something will die, but it's something that needs to die, and you will benefit greatly from its death. On the other hand, sometimes it's easy to let go. If you make this journey of looking to see if there's something you're holding on to, often it's going to be just a little thing. Once, when I was stuck with something huge, Trungpa Rinpoche gave me some advice. He said, It's too big. You can't let go of it yet, so practice with the little ones. Just start noticing all the little ways you hold when it's actually pretty easy and just get the hang of letting go. That was extremely good advice. You don't have to do the big one because usually you can't. It's too threatening. It may even be too harsh to get to let go right then and there on the spot. But even with small things, you may, perhaps just intellectually, begin to see that letting go can bring a sense of enormous relief, relaxation and connection with the softness of the genuine heart. True, true joy comes from that. You can also see that holding on increases the pain. But that doesn't mean you're going to be able to let go because there's a lot at stake. What's at stake is your whole sense of who you are, your whole identity. You're beginning to move into the territory of egolessness, the insubstantial nature of oneself, and of everything for that matter. Theoretical, philosophical, distant-sounding teachings can get pretty real when you're beginning to have an inkling of what they're actually talking about. It takes a lot of patience not to beat up on yourself for being a failure at letting go. But if you apply patience to the fact that you can't let go, somehow that helps you to do it. Patience with the fact that you can't let go helps you to get to the point of letting go gradually, at a very sane and loving speed, at the speed that your basic wisdom allows you to move. It's a big moment even to get to the point where you realize you have a choice. Patience is what you need at that point to just wait and soften, to sit with the restlessness and edginess and discomfort of the energy. I've come to find that patience has a lot of humor and playfulness in it. It's a misunderstanding to think of it as endurance, as in just grin and bear it. Endurance involves some kind of repression or trying to live up to somebody else's standards of perfection. Instead, you find you have to be pretty patient with what you see as your own imperfections, 
Patience is a kind of synonym for loving-kindness because the speed of loving-kindness can be extremely slow. You are developing patience and loving-kindness for your own imperfections, for your own limitations, for not living up to your own high ideals. There's a slogan someone once came up with that I like. Lower your standards and relax as it is. That's patience. Pema Children then continues, I'd like to stress that one of the things you most have to be patient with is, oops, I did it again. There's a slogan that says, one at the beginning and one at the end. That means that when you wake up in the morning, you make your resolve, and at the end of the day, you review with a caring and gentle attitude how you've done. Our normal resolve is to say something like, I'm going to be patient today, or, or some other such setup. As someone put it, we plan our next failure. Instead of setting yourself up, you can say, Today I'm going to try to the best of my ability to be patient. And then in the evening, you can look back over the whole day with loving kindness and not beat yourself up. You're patient with the fact that when you review your day, or even the last 40 minutes, you discover, I've talked and filled up the space just like I've done all my life, as long as I can remember. I was aggressive with the same style of aggression that I've used as long as I can remember. I got carried away with irritation exactly the same way that I have for the last, and if you're 20 years old, it's been the last 20 years that you've been doing it that way. If you're 75 years old, it's 75 years that you've been doing it that way. You see this and you say, Give me a break. The path of developing loving kindness and compassion is to be patient with the fact that you're human, that you make these mistakes. That's more important than getting it right. It seems to work only if you're aspiring to give yourself a break, to lighten up, as you practice developing patience and other qualities such as generosity, discipline and insight. As with the rest of the teachings, you can't win and you can't lose. You don't get to just say, well, since I'm never able to do it, I'm not going to try. You're never able to do it, and still you try. And interestingly enough, that adds up to something. It adds up to loving kindness for yourself and for others. You look out your eyes and you see yourself wherever you go. You see all these people who are losing it, just like you do. Then you see all these people who catch themselves and give you the gift of fearlessness. You say, oh wow, what a brave one. He or she caught themselves. You begin to appreciate even the slightest gesture of bravery on the part of others because you know it's not easy. And that inspires you tremendously. That's how we can really help each other. Isn't that something to think about? With that, we must say farewell for another week. For now, time is up. Thanks for being with us today. And please dedicate the positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. I hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.